Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. We continue our series in 2 Corinthians, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So just before we jump into our text, just a bit of background, especially if it's your first time here. We've been going through 2 Corinthians from chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, even though it was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it's incredibly relevant to uh, our context today here in Johannesburg and in South Africa. Uh, my students at seminary, when I go through 2 Corinthians, or First and Second Corinthians with them, one of the questions I often ask them is, in what ways uh, is the city, was the city of Corinth like the city of Johannesburg? The city of Corinth was a wealthy city, but there was also a great um, difference between the poor and the wealthy. There, it was an entrepreneurial city. You could be a self-made person. There was a lot of business activity that was going on. It was a port city, a lot of interaction, a lot of trade. Uh, But it was also a very immoral place, a lot of sexual immorality, uh, prostitution, same as Johannesburg. There were many religions, many cultures, many ethnicities, same as Johannesburg. So very relevant for us today. And the church at Corinth had many of the same problems that the church at large has today. Uh, There was division, factionalism. They had their favorite pastor. They didn't come if their guy wasn't preaching. Uh, There was fighting between the different socioeconomic classes, uh, the poor and the rich. In fact, the rich would not wait for the poor to arrive, especially those who were slaves. Uh, They would start communion early, and in fact, they would just carry on and get drunk. There was drunkenness in the church, so immorality. There was sexual immorality in the church. There was a lack of church discipline in the church. Uh, it is not a common thing to see church discipline practiced faithfully, if at all, the church at large. And then there was confusion regarding spiritual gifts. Uh, there was this idea of one-upmanship, people trying to outdo one another, uh, to draw the most attention to themselves. And Paul has to treat them like children. And there were false teachers, false apostles that crept into the church trying to turn people away from faithful teachers, and specifically the Apostle Paul. And they were really what we would say today prosperity preachers. They were after money. They were charismatic. Uh, They were uh, good-looking. They were very eloquent, very smooth, very sophisticated, domineering. And so remember, in in a... in a large city, in a wealthy city, in an entrepreneurial city, people want strong leaders. Uh, and the church was the same. They wanted these strong leaders. And so that's what they got. They got domineering, manipulative, abusive leaders. Uh, and Christianity is not like that. Christianity isn't about, um, you know, 
making everyone slaves. Christianity is about making disciples. Okay? Uh, it's not to say that leaders shouldn't be strong, but strong in their convictions of what God's word teaches, not abusive or manipulative, uh, not uh, overbearing, not heavy shepherding, not being policemen in everyone's life. We're here to make disciples, to equip people to make more disciples. That's the biblical model, and that's the model you should take into every sphere of life, whether it's marriage, business. Uh, you're not just an overlord. Uh, you're there to, to help and to equip, to make disciples of others, to draw them closer to the Lord. And unfortunately, these false apostles had wreaked a lot of havoc in Corinth. And Paul has to defend himself. And so let's read this passage to see how he continues to defend himself. We've seen all the way through, but now we're in chapter 12, verse 11. He says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So verse 11, Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. Uh, again, if you've been here any, any period of time, you'll know that uh, Paul is saying he has been a fool because he's had to defend his ministry, to commend himself, uh, and uh, defend his experiences, defend his, his life, defend his ethnicity. All of these things he's had to defend. And he's over and over again, he said, this is madness. I'm, in fact, he says, I'm speaking like a madman. I'm a fool having to defend myself. And here again, he says it. I have been a fool. But he, he refuses to take responsibility for it. He says it's the church's fault. He says, you forced me to do it. Corinth, you put me in this position where I had to defend myself. I ought to have been commended by you. Paul says the church should have commended him. They should have stood up for him against these false apostles who were slandering their apostle. They should have defended him and said, no, Paul is a faithful apostle. He is a man of God. You are liars and cheats, and we want nothing to do with you. They should have chased them out of town. But they didn't do that. They allowed these men to insinuate themselves into that church and to really try and usurp the authority that Paul had. So some application here. Uh, Paul is saying, you know, they should have commended him. Um, and we've seen this already in 2 Corinthians as application is that we should be a church that commends what is good. 
When we see God using people, we commend them. We praise God for the work that is happening in them. This was their spiritual father. This was the man who planted the church in Corinth. If it were not for his ministry, they wouldn't even be saved, most of them. And yet they refused to commend him. And you know it's the worst thing when you have to commend yourself, isn't that right? You know those people. In every conversation, they have to commend themselves. Um, always feel threatened and have to commend themselves. In fact, the scripture says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. You know, Proverbs says that. Okay, it actually tells us, don't praise yourself. Don't commend yourself. Let somebody else do it. But because this church refused to commend Paul, refused to defend him, Paul is forced to speak like a madman. But we've noticed the irony that he uses all the way along, uh, so that he's not sinning, he's not boasting in a sinful way. In fact, he boasts about his weaknesses, as we saw Last week, he boasts about his thorn in the flesh. He boasts about his sufferings, because when he is weak, then he is strong. But let me encourage us to be a church that commends what is good and honorable and pure and noble and true. Uh, I've, I've met uh, in my years in ministry and as a Christian, you always find there are people that think it's evil to commend others. They think it's some form of flattery. Flattery is evil, but it is not wrong to encourage and commend. It is biblical. To praise for the right things. We're acknowledging God at work. It's to encourage people to see God is working in you. Okay. Those people, the only time you ever hear from them is when they have something bad to say. Now it doesn't mean one should never criticize, not at all. Paul is, Paul is criticizing these people. Uh, so we don't want to be a church where we just say nice things and never confront and never correct one another. Not at all. But if all you ever do is criticize, you know, after a while that loses its power, isn't that right? If the person can't ever encourage or see the good, then how much does the person really care or love? And so let me encourage you to be a church that commends what is good and true and to defend godly men and women when they're under attack, when their character is slandered. If you know, if you know them, to defend them. If you know their character, so we need to watch out those two sides, as we've already seen in 2 Corinthians. We don't want to be flatterers. The false teachers were flatterers. Flattery is lying and manipulative. We don't want to be those people. Nor do we want to be people who never commend, never encourage, never speak graciously and kindly, and acknowledge what is good and right. Paul goes on to say, For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so he's quite sarcastic here. He calls them super apostles. Okay? Uh, elsewhere he calls them pseudo apostles, false apostles, but they have a high view of themselves. Uh, and so he's, he's mocking them to say these super apostles. You know? There's the regular run of the mill apostles, and then there's these guys, these super apostles. Uh, but he says, I, w I was not inferior to any of them in any area even though I am nothing. Now he's not just being you know, that sort of pretend humble here. I'm nothing. Uh, elsewhere, Paul says that he's the least of the apostles. Okay. Uh, that was really his view of himself, how he saw himself. That he was the least. He had the least to offer. He was the weakest. Least to offer as a person, not in terms of revelation that God had given to him, in terms of the truth, but as a person. We've already seen the weaknesses that he had, probably physical weaknesses. They said he wasn't eloquent. He wasn't a great dynamic preacher. He wouldn't be invited to, you know, the big conferences in America. He wasn't the big shot, the very eloquent guy that everyone wants to hear. 
They were able to tease him. They even said that. Look, his, his letters are good, but his preaching's not so great. He doesn't look so good. And so Paul says, I'm the least. I'm nothing. But he says this in verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul says, look, there are certain signs that distinguish a true apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Part of those signs, as we'll see, were signs and wonders, miracles. But this whole letter has been a defense of his apostleship. And so what have we seen? A true apostle doesn't water down God's word, doesn't change God's word. He faithfully proclaims God's word. He doesn't do it to try and win an audience. He doesn't do it to try and get money, make a living out of the ministry. To twist the message so he can get more hearers, get a bit more money. Paul says the true apostle preaches the word of God faithfully. Undiluted. Paul says a true apostle suffers. He says the apostles are the offscouring of the earth. They're the rubbish of the earth. A true apostle suffers. These false apostles boasted in the fact that they, they don't suffer. But Paul says the signs of a true apostle were there. I was a true and am a true apostle. He says these signs were performed with utmost patience or great endurance. Uh, Paul did not give up. And that's another sign that we've seen of faithful ministry, application to, to all Christians. Uh, so it's always difficult when you take in the Apostle Paul and things that were you know, true for him as an apostle. We believe that the apostles were unique. That that apostolic ministry does not continue to this day. There were the original 12. Judas disqualified himself. There was another one added. And then Paul. So 13 true apostles. There were many messengers. The word apostle just means messengers. There were other people that God used. But those capital A apostles were absolutely unique. And so it's always been difficult. Lelo and I have these discussions as we, we study the text together and that and discuss the sermon. You can't di directly apply Paul as a unique apostle and just say, well, therefore it applies to pastors or this or that. But there are secondary implications for those in ministry and for all Christians. And one of those is endurance. I've told you before about the statistics out of America. Thousands and thousands of pastors every month are leaving the ministry because they find it much harder than they ever thought it would be. How many people do you know who once claimed to be Christians and now no longer walk with the Lord? Lord. Endurance is critical. Those that endure to the end will be saved. And Paul says, as a true apostle, I have endured. Patient endurance. I have not given up. Go back and read 2 Corinthians if you hadn't. See the suffering that he experienced. Everywhere he goes, he's rejected. Sometimes they try to stone him. They beat him often. They, terrible sufferings. But he endures. He does not stop. Can you imagine? Getting up every day wondering, what is going to happen to me today? Who will beat me up today? Will they throw me in jail today? 
If he was on LinkedIn, I'm sure, you know, looking, what else is there? Uh, <laughs> I get these emails, you know, 10 people have looked at your profile or whatever, like, don't worry, I don't look at them. Uh, but can you imagine, like, Paul, uh, you have administrative skills, managerial skills, we have, we have a great opening here, the Roman Empire needs you in this area. Uh, no, but he endured. Every day he gets up, he perseveres, he plants more churches. The church that he spent the most time with, nearly two years, this church at Corinth, you know, some places he was there just a few weeks, plants a church there. Nearly two years he's with this church, he gave them everything. He loved them so much. They turn against him, they reject him. Later on he says, all have forsaken me. And yet he endures, he does not give up. And so let me encourage you, in ministry, not in ministry, as a Christian, do not give up. Uh, trials will come, sufferings will come, that is promised, but do not give up. Endure to the end. So Paul says, I've been a true apostle, the signs are there, I faithfully proclaim God's word. It is true, it is the gospel. I suffer, and I've done all of this with patient endurance. And one of, the, one of the other marks of a true apostle is the supernatural, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now earlier on in the chapter, Paul refused to even talk about his revelation that he experienced. Remember, he was caught up into the third heaven. These super apostles were proclaiming all sorts of visions and experiences with God. And Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven, uh, but I'm not allowed to tell you what I saw. So he basically nullifies his vision. It was appropriate for him, it was to encourage him, uh, but it was not directly important for the church. And so Paul really just nullifies that argument because you know that if I say to you, last night um, I was caught up into the third heaven and I saw this and this and this and uh, the Lord has told me to come back and do this and this and this and you need to do this and this and this and here's my bank account. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How do, you, how do you verify that? It's unverifiable, isn't that right? Anyone can claim anything. Paul says that's a waste of time. You can't argue about that stuff. Anyone can make up things. I was. It was true. I could boast in this. It really happened. But I'm not even allowed to tell you about it. So let's leave it there. Okay? But what we can verify is the miracles that I have done. The works of an apostle were done in me. Signs, wonders, and mighty works. And we've been going through the book of Acts... We have seen that. Remember the miracles and the signs and wonders in, in Acts and in the Gospels were not done in a corner. They were not done in a tent meeting where everyone's worked up and everyone's filtered. No, you, you, no, you're, you really don't have a, a, an arm. You can't come up because people can see that we can't fix that. But yeah, it looks like your one leg is shorter than the other. We'll do that one. It was not like that. It was not planned or staged. There was no mirrors and smoke. It was public, immediate, verifiable. You could see it. That's what Paul says. The signs of a true apostle were done by me. These guys did not have these signs and wonders. They were claiming visions and all sorts of other things. Paul says, I did these things. You know I did these things. And you can go and read the book of Acts. They were real. Powerful miracles. Supernatural works. Now what was the purpose of them? Why? You know, there are many people saying, well, we still see them. 
We don't. We don't see those miracles. Okay? Um, and what people have now done is just sort of try and make everything a miracle. Because we don't see such radical miracles where someone, people don't have eyes, eyeballs, and they suddenly have eyeballs, people are dead and they're raised to life properly. Okay, not, <laughs> not the fake one. Uh, uh, people are paralyzed from, from childhood. Everyone in the whole community knows this. It's not, it's not a con. It's not someone who's just started you know, at the traffic light for a few minutes to look like they're paralyzed and then afterwards is fine. No, a true miracle has taken place, verifiable. Now why? Why, why did it happen? Why is everyone trying to downgrade miracles? So miracles now are like, I didn't have an accident. It's a miracle. It's not a miracle. I found a parking spot. It's a miracle. Um, I had, uh, even, even if we could say it, it's, it's out of the ordinary. I had cancer, but now it's gone. That, that happens to a lot of people. That happens to unbelievers who've never been prayed for. I'm not saying it's not God working. It is God working, but God works through ordinary means and extraordinary means. He but where, where, where it's an organic miracle, where someone's arm is withered, there is no muscle there, and then suddenly it all grows. You never see that. There is no verifiable account of people being raised from the dead, properly dead. Why? Why is it not happening anymore? If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't that what people say? But go and read the scriptures. God acts differently in different epochs, in different periods of time. Adam's not doing miracles. Abel's not doing miracles. Nobody's doing miracles until Moses starts doing miracles. But I thought God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is in his essence, in his attributes, but not in the way he interacts. We even say the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a difference between the way God interacts now. But his attributes and his essence never, ever change. He's not grumpy one day and then happy the next. He is the same. He is always righteous. He is always holy. He is always perfect in every one of his attributes. There will never be a time like this time in the Middle East when the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles walked on this earth. It was absolutely unique, and I hope you're getting that from the series in Acts. Definitely. It's crystal clear. This is unprecedented and unique and will never happen ever again because it is such an epochal period in redemptive history. It is a shift between the old and the new. It is the inauguration of the new covenant. It is the bringing in of the New Testament. So why were they allowed to do miracles? Why were they used by God to do these amazing things that were public and verifiable that you could say, that is an apostle? Why did it happen? It was to vindicate, to authenticate the messenger and the message. It was to vindicate and authenticate the apostles and the message that they proclaimed. Let me give you a few verses and you see this going together. Acts 2.22. Uh, Lela, Apostle Leila has already preached on this before. Just to remind you, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. See what Peter says? Jesus was attested to be the Messiah through the, the signs and wonders that he did. It authenticated that when Jesus claims to be the Messiah, that he can do these public, verifiable 
supernatural immediate acts that he is who he says he was. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says this, How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The gospel. And then he says this about the gospel. It was first spoken by the Lord, the Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Who heard him? The apostles. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. See, that testified. This message is true. How do we know that? Because of the supernatural signs and wonders performed by the apostles. And that's what happened with Moses. Moses gave us the first five books of the Bible. He is authenticated through the supernatural miracles that, and works that he, that he did. Acts 14, verse 3, last verse. So they, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they're at Iconium, remained for a long time speaking boldly, so they're proclaiming, for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Okay. So can you see why, why Paul can use this as a, as a sign of a true apostle? If, if, all, if everyone else was doing signs and wonders and miracles, it couldn't be an authenticating sign. If the false apostles were doing them, then Paul couldn't say, you know that I'm a true apostle because the signs and wonders and miracles have been done by me. I have done this. Not in his own power. It's very interesting the way that he puts it. He doesn't claim, I've, I've done this. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. The apostles always knew it was not them, nothing inherent to them. It was God's grace in them, working through them. And so they, these signs, these miracles were done to authenticate the, the preacher, the apostle, as he proclaimed this, this word. And the apostles had a specific role to play. They had to lay the foundation. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that. The foundation of the church, of the New Testament church. And as you say many times here, how many times do you lay a foundation? Okay, those of you who are not builders, only once, okay? <laughs> only once, unless it's really bad. Uh, but these apostles were not bad. Uh, they were chosen by God, filled with His Spirit, equipped, and uh, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You lay the foundation once. That was the role of the apostles and prophets. That foundation has been laid it is done. There are no new additions to the scriptures. What we have is complete and sufficient for us, for salvation and to live a godly life. And so the supernatural was done, but it was to authenticate them. Okay? Um, lastly, they're called signs because signs point beyond themselves. Okay? So many people, unfortunately, are caught up in chasing after miracles as an end in themselves. In Scripture, they were not to do that. They were signs. They were to point beyond themselves to the messenger and the message that they proclaimed. To say, this message is true. How do I know it's true? Well, I just raised someone from the dead. Okay. Just being used by God in this way. It was an authentication of the message that the apostles had. And so Paul defends his ministry. Not by using visions or anything like that. He uses faithful proclamation of the word of God. Suffering. And then here, briefly, he just, just puts it in. Signs and wonders, miracles. That's what he did. 
God used him. He was a true apostle. You could go and check the false apostles. They couldn't do these things. They could do the, the play-play things, but not the real thing, because they were not true apostles. So let me encourage you in that. God's word is sufficient. This is not, this is not a downgrade. Okay? I think Christians we often think that. They think this is a downgrade. Oh man, imagine we lived at that time, you know, miracles and signs and wonders. I would hate to live in the book of Acts. I'll tell you that right now. There are people dropping dead in church. Would you like that? Be frightening. Okay? It was a transitional period. It was hectic. What we have is sufficient. The scriptures. It's not a downgrade. We have the complete word of God. It is sufficient for us. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Don't be longing for something like that. What, if I die, I said to you, we were, we were watching something. Um, oh yeah, we were watching a, a series the other day. and uh, It's a detective series and the person gets kidnapped and there's ransom and there's all this debate about ransom. And, and so I just said to my family, I said, if they ever kidnap me, it's fine. They can kill me. Don't pay any money. Not that we have it, but like I don't want you guys just selling your shoes to try and... Uh, it's fine, I'm going to heaven. I don't want to die and then someone comes along a big shot and raises me back to life. And then I have to die again. It's not a great time. We, what we have is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. It is all we need. Can we cry out to God in suffering for healing? Yes, we are his children. But as we saw last week, sometimes God simply says this. My grace is sufficient for you. Okay? And it's not a downgrade. His grace is sufficient. The thing you want most in your life is the grace of God. So don't see it as a downgrade. And maybe some of you have questions, and, and we welcome those questions. So come afterwards. We can speak. Uh, we believe that God's word has the answers. But let me just challenge you with this. What are you really looking for? Are you looking for Christ and to know him better, or are you just looking for something other? Um, if you're sincere and you just really want to understand what God's word teaches, praise God for that. We're here. We'll answer those questions. Verse 13, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? So again, you can see the deceitfulness of these false teachers. They were telling the Corinthians, look, Paul doesn't really like you. You know, he's got his favorites. That church in Colossae, yeah, he loves that church. You guys, not so much. Um, see that other church there, Macedonia, who he loves those guys. doesn't like you guys. Um, just sowing deceitfulness. That's what he's saying. In what way were you less favored? Corinth, I loved you. How were you less favored? The only thing I did different to you, except that I myself did not burden you, I didn't take money from you. Isn't that amazing? He says, you say I loved you less than the other churches. You know, the only thing I did different with, with you as opposed to other churches, I never took financial support from you. Then he says sarcastically, forgive me for this. <laughs> okay. Now, does this mean Paul was against financial support for those in ministry? Not at all. 1 Corinthians 9 is a whole argument about those in ministry should be supported. Uh, 1 Timothy 5 as well. So it's not, the principle here isn't that those in ministry shouldn't be supported. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. There is a specific reason why Paul is not at receiving support from Corinth for himself. He took financial support from other churches. He received it. He accepted it. He gave thanks for it. So why not at Corinth? I'm not entirely sure. It seems to me, though, that he was trying to really 
separate himself from the false apostles. The false apostles were prosperity guys. They were in it for the money. And Paul's action really showed them up. And so I think that was his motivation. He's saying, I'm not going to take money from you. So you can see, I'm not, I'm not in it for the money. He says in verse 14, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you. Uh, so he had been to Corinth twice, the first time when he planted the church, and he was there for a long time. And then, remember, his second visit was his painful visit. He wanted to come and visit them. He thought it was going to be great. And he visits them, and he's confronted and accused and slandered, and the church just sat still. Nobody stood up to defend him. Nobody said, hey, wait a minute, you can't speak to Paul like that. He's our apostle. He is a man of God. We know his character. We know his doctrine. We know the way that he lives. We know his love for us. They just, they just sat back. His painful visit, he's heartbroken. And those of you who've been through the series, you'll know that the language that he uses his love for them. This is his most, his most uh, open letter where we see the heart of, of the great apostle. And now he says, look, I'm going to come back a third time. I'm, I'm planning to come and visit you a third time now. And he says, I'm not going to change my, my model. I won't be a burden to you. I'm not going to come and, and now ask you for financial support. He says, I'm still not going to do that. I'm still not going to ask you to support me financially. And let me also just say, he wasn't afraid to ask Corinth for money because he, he asked them for support for the church in Macedonia. Uh, sorry, for the church in Jerusalem uh, that was experiencing a famine. So it wasn't that he didn't want them to give money. It's just that he didn't take money personally from them. And then he says this. Why doesn't he do that? For I seek not what is yours, but you. I seek not what is yours, but you. The title, title for the sermon is Paul saying, I, I don't want your money, I want you. Okay? Uh, and this is what true Christian love is all about, whether it's pastoral or, or just in the church community or even for our enemies. This is what separates Christian love from any other type of love. Is that we're not seeking stuff for what people can give us in return. Here, Paul has been, is faithfully imitating the triune God. He is imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that God, if you're his child, he doesn't love you because of something that you can give him. You know that? Uh, there's people who say things like God was lonely and so he needed us. It's rubbish. Okay? He's the triune God. He lacks nothing. He had perfect communi communion and fellowship. He was not lonely. Pretty close to blasphemy to even say something like that. He doesn't need us. You think you can give God something? Listen to these passages, Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made with, by hands. Neither is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. You might think you're amazing. You're a great conversationalist. God doesn't need you. <laughs> Your scintillating personality. He doesn't need anything. And yet he loves his people. 
Psalm 50, verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the Lord says, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. It's, I hope it's bursting your bubble, but I'm gonna, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Don't worry. Okay. God doesn't need you at all. You have nothing that he needs. He, do, you do, he he's not, doesn't save you for some potentiality in you or something like that. He is totally complete in himself. Totally satisfied in himself. Doesn't need you. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need food. It's, it's insane. We can't even wrap our... He doesn't need time. He doesn't need any. He's beyond all of those things. And yet he, he loves his people so much that he sent his son to die on the cross. That the Lord Jesus Christ entered into our suffering, took upon himself this frail humanity. Now why is that good news? Those of you who are married or in a relationship might say something like this to to your spouse or or your fiancé or whatever. You know, why do you love me? Now, if you say you're really beautiful, that's great. You should say that. Okay, that's good. But you know that in 40, 50 years, you're not going to be so beautiful. Okay? And if the reason you love someone is because of their beauty, what's going to happen when they're not so beautiful? I love you because you're really, you, sure, you're just really good at conversation. <laughs> You're good at conversation. What happens if the person's in a coma? You know, you know how many marriages end in divorce when one, one, one of the spouses ends up with a debilitating disease or is paralyzed? So why is this good news? If God didn't choose you and doesn't need you, you know that he will never stop loving you even when you sin. Even when you sin in the service and your mind wanders somewhere else and you're thinking wrong things, he still loves you because he didn't love you because you had something to offer him or because he needed you. He set his love upon you and nothing can change that. And that's true Christian love. Now I know it doesn't sound romantic or amazing, but it is true that you love, you want what is best for that person, no matter what they do or how they change. And so Paul says that, I don't want your stuff. I don't, I don't need things from you. I love you. I want what is best for you. I want you. Okay. And what is, what is best for them? Well, Paul wants them to, to know Christ. To know the love of Christ. It's not, remember, Paul is always pointing them, not so much to himself, but to, to Christ. That's, if you love someone, that is what you will want more than anything else for them, is that they know Christ. That's why non-Christians cannot love like this, because they, that's not their desire. They're not desirous that you know Christ better. Only Christians can love like that. We love our enemies. Why do we love our enemies? Because we want them to know Christ. Not because they're amazing. How can you, you cannot love your enemies unless you just blind yourself. Unless you pretend there's no such thing as justice. How can you love your enemy? You can't. It's an impossibility. Unless you say, I love them because I want them to know Christ. 
That's, I love you so much, you've done these terrible things, you've treated me like this, but I love you so much, I still want you to know Christ better. Because that's where true happiness and true satisfaction is, is found. And so Paul all the time is pointing the Corinthians back to Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that God's Spirit works in your heart to see how amazing that is. That God's love is, is, is truly eternal. If He sets His love, if His love is set upon you, He will never, ever stop loving you. No matter what you do, go through the scriptures, see the terrible things God's people do. Look to yourself, okay? You're a Christian, see the terrible things you do and think. But do you know what the Bible teaches? It does not change His love for you, okay? Because He didn't choose you because you were good. In fact, He saw you in all your sin and rebellion and ugliness and set His love upon you and chose to love you. And it doesn't mean it's a cold love, it's a duty love. It's a passionate love, isn't it? He gave his own son. That's not cold. It's not dead religion. He laid down his life. It's passionate love, the most passionate love you can imagine. The Corinthian church has started to be swayed by these false teachers. Paul says that he has a, in, in chapter 11, he says, I have a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. They betrothed to Christ and they've started to, to drift from him, to become estranged from him. He wants them to, to know the love of Christ again. And then he says this, for children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I just want to send my children out for this part. Uh, <laughs> A, <clears throat> I really want to, I, my plan, I, I love my children and I have a wonderful plan for their lives. Uh, <laughs> their plan is that they get rich and I can play golf. Uh, so I really wanted them to look after me when I'm older, but anyway. Yeah, Paul says, uh, children, children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Uh, simply to say he's not giving comprehensive teaching on um, parent-child relationships, First Timothy uh, five, he says, children should look after their parents, okay, so don't take it in an absolute way. He's getting a principle across here. He's been quite sarcastic, hasn't he? Forgive me for this, he said some hard things, but you must never think that he stopped loving them. He still sees it, I'm your father. He's their father in the faith, he's the one who planted the church, he's the one who proclaimed the gospel to them, and here he says that. And this is not just financial, this is about his whole ministry. He says, my... Parents, fathers are supposed to, to look after their children, not the other way around. He says, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to look after you. I'm your father. Remember, they are behaving like, like children. They should be more mature, but they're still behaving like children. But it draws out even more love from the apostle. Continues to love them. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'm willing to give everything for their souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? That's exactly what's happen, happening. You could actually say, Paul loved the Corinthians more than other churches. The amount of time and the way that he treated them. 
He loved them so much, and yet they loved him less than the other churches. The Corinthians were ungrateful. D.A. Carson says this, they were ungrateful. He says, Christians bent on maturity should work hard at gratitude. So you want to be a mature Christian? D.A. Carson in the Bible says, work hard on gratitude. Thankfulness to friends, parents, senior believers who have helped us on our way, and above all to God himself, is not only common courtesy, it is something more, much more. It is simultaneously a powerful antidote to bitterness and malice. Start to be thankful and you'll start to see you become less bitter. Isn't that right? Less malicious. It's a potent acknowledgement that we stand by grace. What else could ever display gratitude as the appropriate response to grace? Whether the special grace that brings us salvation or the grace mediated through fellow believers, friends and events. Grace gives. What more can we do then? Give thanks. What response to grace could be more vile than ingratitude? Again, let's be a church full of gratitude. A church that gives thanks. Even in our sufferings, the Bible says, give thanks in all things. As we saw last week, we can rejoice in those things because they're working for our good. Quickly, verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say. So, so even though he wasn't taking money from them, the false teachers are saying, yeah, but he's crafty. He's just being sneaky. He's pretending not to take money. But this, this, this uh, big collection for Jerusalem, he's going to steal that. Okay. Uh, incredible, the slander that the Corinthians allowed to take place. And he says, and they said, you got the better of you by deceit. Verse 17, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So Paul again is defending himself. He's saying, the, the money for the collection, I sent Titus to you and another brother. Don't, did any of them take advantage of you? Do you really? We, everything is carefully done. It's always, it's not just Paul taking some money by himself and stuffing it in his pocket. Titus and another brother were there. There were always more than one dealing with the money, trustworthy brothers. And so the, there's a, a principle here. Paul is defending himself. Look, that's not how we behaved. Do you really think we're, we're trying to steal all this money for ourselves? You know Titus. He mentions Titus. Titus has already visited them uh, before this letter is written. They, they, Titus is trustworthy and this other brother as well. And so just some application for us here, um, for all Christians, financial integrity, but especially for the church. Uh, you know how many times um, people in ministry are caught in, in scandals of it's either sexual or financial, stealing money. Uh, and so Paul is saying, it's just, he's not giving us a teaching on how to do things directly, but just see the pattern. Okay. And so, uh, praise God for the deacons that we have and the financial structure that we have and people counting the money and all of that. We, we do everything in our power to mitigate even the temptation to steal or to uh, misuse God's money. But you as a congregation and the deacons that are raised up need to continue that, that system and keep those things in, in place. 
Never underestimate the power of money to cause division and to tempt people to, to sin. Okay? And don't just assume. Keep those checks and balances in place. And of course, these Paul was trustworthy, Titus was trustworthy, and they, they cared for the people. They were not trying to abuse them and steal from them. And of course, they, they're imitating Christ. Christ cares for us and loves us. He's not trying to abuse you or steal from you or take from you. But they had allowed these sinful men in. D.A. Carson says this, their understanding of triumphalistic leadership, you know, that bombastic, victorious leadership, name it and claim it leadership, inevitably cried out for strong authority figures who actually exploited them. And we're seeing that, aren't we? It's a tragedy across, across the church and across the church in South Africa. Uh, exploitative leadership in the church. Uh, we want that to part, not to be part of the DNA. We want the opposite to be part of the DNA of the church. That we, as we continue to raise up more and more leaders, more and more elders, deacons, that it's the exact opposite. A DNA of caring and loving, of gratitude, of commending, of Christ-likeness. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one worth imitating. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, I thank you for your Apostle Paul and uh, his example to us. Uh, we thank you for his faithfulness in ministry and all that he suffered and yet he persevered. You kept him, Lord. You used him in such a powerful way. Uh, Father, we are aware that uh, many of the, the, the lies of the devil, the sins in, in culture are the same in Johannesburg as they were in Corinth. And we do ask that you would keep us alert, uh, that you would uh, be with us here at Heritage and all faithful churches, and uh, that we would be a, a, a faithful church, Lord, faithful ministers of your word. Uh, keep us uh, pure, keep us uh, full of integrity, help us to be a church that is uh, full of gratitude for you, Lord, that a church, a church that has true love, that it's not a love that is sentimental or manipulative, that seeks its own, but a longing to see Christ formed in every single person, even our enemies. That is the greatest love, uh, that we would spend and be spent so that this might be seen in the church, in our families, in our children, in our peers, in our work colleagues. Uh, and so please do a wonderful work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.